Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What happened to music that meant something? The Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to channel our inner teenager and take a trip back to the heyday of bubblegum pop. Plus, we'll review the new albums from R&B superstar Beyonce and underground meta rappers The Nux. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. In the night I hear him talk The coldest story ever told Somewhere far along this road He lost his soul To a woman so heartless How could you be so heartless? Greg, that is the new single Heartless by Kanye West. We're going to talk about his fourth album next week when it's dropped. But at the moment, it's the number one most popular download on uh, iTunes, Apple's music store. Apple is having a very good year, music-wise, in the midst of an otherwise bad year for music, another bad year for music. People may be a little cautious going into the holiday season with consumer electronics, but Apple wrapped up its fiscal year with a 34% jump in all of its music-related products and services. According to their recent 10K filing of profits for the year, the uh, sales for all music products and services were at $2.5 billion in 2007. They jumped up to $3.3 Thirty-four billion dollars this year. That includes everything. You know, the downloads, the iPods they're selling, the iPhones. The new iPhone just beat out the Motorola Razor this week as the most popular cell phone. Uh, this in the midst of. Otherwise, as I said, a pretty dismal time. Album sales in the U.S. were down 19.4 percent in 2008 from 2007. Everybody's moaning except for Apple. Well, not only Apple, but. You look at these companies that are thriving in the midst of this musical downturn. Everybody says, oh, the music business is in terrible shape. Well, no, it's not. If you look outside the big four corporations that have dominated the music industry for the last half century, there are a lot of people making money off music right now. Apple, first and foremost among them. But look at what YouTube's doing with yeah. you know nonstop video basically all day, anytime. You can click up any song at any time and, and find it on YouTube. Remember when you used to have to sit in front of MTV and pray that something good would come <laughs> yeah, on? Exactly. Now it's, it's a, the click of a button. Same thing with Amazon. Amazon is selling a lot of music. Look at MySpace. All the record companies are rushing to get into partnership with MySpace right now in, in its new rollout mm-hmm. of, of a music format. So, yes, there is money to be made in the music business. The major labels haven't figured out how to do it, but these other technology-based companies certainly are. Jim, if we were to take a bet five years ago at the start of the whole digital download 
craze and said, okay, what's going to be the best-selling song of all time in the iTunes catalog at the end of 2008? Would the answer have been <laughs> Journey's Don't Stop Believing"? My, I, I would not answer Journey to any question ever, <laughs> except just, perhaps one of the worst bands of all time. You want to forget about them, right? Yeah. But that song has recently passed the 2 million download threshold on iTunes. It is the biggest-selling catalog song of all time as sold on iTunes. Now, why is this happening? It came out in 81, as I said. It wasn't even the best-selling song on that album, the Escape album. It was the big Journey breakthrough album. It sold 3, 4 million copies. They had a couple of huge hits on that record, in addition to Don't Stop Believin'. In fact, Don't Stop Believin' was only a number nine single. Who's Crying Now and Open Arms were much bigger singles off of that album. But here, the number three single off that record becomes mm-hmm. a best-selling download. I think it's revealing what's at number two and number three. <laughs> Leonard Skinner's Sweet Home Alabama, 1.46 million, and Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, 1.44 million. Yeah. Now, I'm sick to death of both of those songs, too, but they are at least great canonical songs. You know what I mean? They belong in a pantheon, but you know, not Journey. Well, here's why it's there, though. That keyboard riff by one Jonathan Cain at the start of the song, that is one of the all-time great keyboard riffs. And you're when not you saying hear that, something nice about Journey. You uh, hear that and you go, something good's going to happen. Just because the song goes downhill from uh, there, I, I, it's I, not Jonathan Cain's fault. <laughs> Secondly, look at the trifecta that this song scored in recent years. In 2005, it became the theme song of the Chicago White Sox winning the World Series. That's not an asset either. <laughs> well, you know, whether you're a Sox fan or not, or a baseball fan or not, you heard that song constantly during that World Series championship year in 2005. Then you had, of course, one of the most famous television episodes of all time, The Sopranos, ending mm-hmm. with that song being played. People are still talking about that controversial last episode and that song playing over the top of it as the screen went blank. What happens to Tony? And then last Lastly, Kanye West, a man who's had his finger on the pulse of pop culture for the last few years, was playing this song as part of his encore on his 2008 tour. So we can blame Kanye. Kanye, I think, was the guy that nailed the coffin. Yes, Kanye absolutely. and Tony Soprano. Yes, All right. absolutely. Miriam Makiba singing about her homeland on her 2000 album. Miriam Makiba dead at the age of 76 after performing in Italy a few days ago. She is the woman known as Mama Africa. Jim, what Mahalia Jackson was, what Edith Piaf was, what Celia Cruz was to, to their respective countries, that's who Miriam Makiba was to South mm-hmm. Africa, and Africa in general. She was embraced by the entire continent. Uh, she was one of the great singers uh, beginning in the 50s in that country, had a number of hits but was very outspoken in her political views and against apartheid and racism in her home country and was actually exiled from South Africa. 31 years, a third of her life, she couldn't go home. What she did during that time, Jim, is fascinating, I think. Uh, She put world music on the map, basically, with her husband, Hugh Masekela, and Olatunji, the great drummer from Africa. Before anybody really knew what's what's world music, they were doing it and, and spreading the gospel of African music around the world. 
Makiba did this uh, in tandem not only with Masekela, her husband, but later on she was married to uh, Stokely Carmichael, the black activist. That got her thrown off her record label, and yet she continued to record, she continued to tour, made her mark not only as a singer and a vocalist who expressed the pain of her country's struggle in the yearning in her voice, but also in her outspokenness as a speaker and as an activist. There's a lot of ways we can go to pay tribute to Miriam Makiba, but I think the best way, Jim, is to play one of her most famous songs. It's called Pato Pato. It was a huge hit in the 50s, helped put world music on the map in the United States. She recorded another version of it for her 2000 album, and she brings it up to date. And in the middle of it, she starts talking about the history of the song. Even though she was this activist and an outspoken advocate for her country's struggle, above all, the music was meant to dance and make people feel better. And that's what this song is about. You can hear it in her voice, you can hear it in the rhythm, and you can hear it in the conviction that she brings to this tune, even having recorded it for the upteenth time on her 2000 album, Homeland. Here's Miriam McKeever with Pato Pato on Sound Opinions. Kiba, dead at the age of 76. That is Pato Pato 2000 on Sound Opinions. Greg, if we haven't alienated listeners by playing Journey, we may do so by playing that song. It's Now or Never from High School Musical 3, the uh, number three album on the pop charts in America at this moment. It's been blocked from number one by ACDC, I'm happy to say. (laughs) Why are we playing Bubblegum? You and I uh, try to listen to things from time to time so that other people don't have to, you know? (laughs) Mom or Dad might be curious. What's the story with High School Musical or Jonas Brothers, whatever the junior or their daughter is listening to? We try to fill in those blanks, okay? Here's five minutes on it. Now you don't have to think about it yourself. That having been said, I've made this point on the show many times. There is no such thing as any genre in popular music in rock history that is completely worthless. Sure. There is always great music in any genre. I don't care if you're talking about polka 
classical rock or death metal. And bubblegum has had some extraordinary music throughout its long history. I will also just argue that that bubblegum is absolutely necessary. You know, sociologists talk about this concept of that in order to get immersed in a drug culture or get hooked on a drug, you need like a guide to get you hooked, okay? <laughs> Our drug of choice is music. It's a benign drug. It's a healthy drug. But you need to learn how to become a music fan. We, we need the Hillary Duffs and the Pinks and the Avril Lavines to teach our sons and daughters how to love music and to get them hooked right. on this wonderful addiction. Stepping stones, absolutely. I think one of the things that's most troubling to, to a lot of parents these days about what's going on with teen pop is the level of marketing. I mean, it's an assault. I mean, Disney has got this down to a, to a science. They've got their own TV network. They've got the movie industry. They've got a, a record label. They've got a radio station. So these kids are being inundated with the new thing. And this started with the Britney Spears phenomenon in the late 90s, and we've seen the latest thing with uh, the Jonas Brothers and Miley Cyrus, an example of how powerful Disney is. But within that, I think you're absolutely right. There can be some great music there, a stepping stone, if you will, for these young listeners into the great stuff that is going to come down the road once they mature a little bit. Well, and it's been there from the beginning of rock and roll. I mean, if we consider, uh, you know, rock and roll day one to be the mid-50s, not long thereafter, there was rock and roll being made that was marketed specifically to kids and tweens. You go back to something like Shirley Ellis's The Name Game, or Johnny Thunder's Loop de Loop, yeah. or the Dixie Cup's Ico Ico. My grandma and your grandma were sitting by the fire. My grandma told your grandma, I'm gonna set your flag on fire. You're talking about Hina, Hina, Ico, Ico, and that, that was music for kids, music to get the kids hooked, and then they can go on and discover Elvis and Chuck Berry. It began sort of as this teen phenomenon, obviously, and you know Elvis Presley, obviously the, the first major star that appealed to that generation on that level. Ready, set, go, man, go. I got a gal that I love so Then it became more refined. As, as the 50s moved on and the businessmen moved in and realized, hey, we can make a lot of money off this yeah, stuff. Right. Selling to these impressionable kids, you know. And it worked to a, to a large extent. I mean, there were these manufactured teen idols that were created during this era. You know, people like Fabian and Paul Anka and Frankie Avalon and Bobby Rydell, most of whom amounted to not much. Annette Funicello. Uh, Annette Funicello, absolutely. But I would argue... And I've said this before on the show. Ricky Nelson is one of those guys who survived the whole teen idol, pinup guy fame that he received in the 50s, thanks in large part to his connection with the Ozzy and Harriet show. I mean, those were his real-life parents. Well, see, this, and he this, was starring in a show with them. This cross-promotional marketing of TV, <laughs> radio, albums, movies has been there from day one. The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet, starring the entire Nelson family, Ozzy, Harriet, David, and Ricky. Here is Ozzy, who plays the part of Ozzy Nelson. And, of course, his lovely wife Harriet as Harriet Nelson. The older of the Nelson boys, David, appears as David Nelson. And his younger brother, Ricky, played by Ricky Nelson. It, it, it has, and, and Ricky Nelson was one of the great examples of that. That career was launched by him performing songs on his parents' television program that was, you know, seen by millions and millions of people around America every week. But he survived that to make some really 
powerful music, actually. A pretty decent rockabilly artist in the 50s, and he morphed throughout his career to become a credible artist well into the 70s. Let's go back to those teen pop beginnings when he was only about 17, 18 years old. He was getting pretty serious about his music. He became a pretty decent songwriter, rhythm guitar player, singer with a great band. The great James Burton was his lead guitar player. Mm. So those records were very credible. And if you listen to some of the records he was making in the 50s, they were far more stripped down than some of the more elaborate recordings that even like Elvis was doing. Elvis would have the Jordanaires slap on some gospel harmonies on his records. And yeah. they, were, they were orchestrated. Nelson was recording with a three- or four-piece band, James Burton playing some really rough leads uh, on these songs, and and, and the music rocked. And here's an example of it. Uh, It's a song called Believe What You Say by one of the first teen pop idols, Ricky Nelson, on Sound Opinions. I believe what you say when you say you're going steady with nobody else but me. I believe what you say when you say you don't kiss nobody else but me. I believe, do believe. I believe, yeah, I believe, pretty baby. Believe you're going steady with nobody else but me. Well, there's one thing, baby, that I want you to know. When you're rocking with me, you're going to rock too slow. Move on and get toe-to-toe. We're going to rock till we can't rock no more. I believe, do believe, I believe, yeah, believe, pretty baby. Believe you're going steady with nobody else but me. Well, let's dig it now. Well, I believe what you say when you say you don't miss nobody else but me. I believe what you say when you say you don't kiss nobody else but me. I believe, do believe, I believe, yeah, believe, pretty baby. Believe you're going steady with nobody else but me. Well, when you kiss me, baby, then you roll your eyes. I get a funny feeling that I'm hypnotized. Chills run all up and down my spine. Everybody that you're mine, all mine I believe, do believe Yeah, believe Oh, believe, pretty baby Believe you're going steady with nobody else but me Oh, yeah Oh, well, I believe Do believe, yeah, believe Well, believe, pretty baby Believe you're going steady with nobody else but me Ricky Nelson, Believe What You Say Greg's choice for the first great bubblegum rock song of all time from 58. We're uh, we're doing a genre dissection of the bubblegum pop phenomenon. We're going to take it from those beginnings all the way up to the present when we come back on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And later on, we'll review the new albums from Beyonce and the Nux. Yeah. 
Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Yummy, 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 I got love in my tummy and I feel like I'm loving you. Love you such a sweet thing, good enough to Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Jim DeRogatis and myself, Greg Cott, we're doing a genre dissection of the bubblegum music phenomenon. And uh, in the late 60s, that was the heyday of this art form, if you will. And that was one of the great examples of yes. bubblegum pop from 1968, Yummy, Yummy, Yummy by the Ohio Express. Jim, there's no doubt that once we went through that first phase of teen pop, bubblegum pop, with the teen idols of the late 50s, early 60s, it took another turn towards the business and marketing side uh, in the late 60s. Well, it absolutely did. You know, the Beatles had shown what a well-crafted image of a band. You know, they all lived in that house together in in A Hard Day's Night, right? And, uh, you, you know, this was an appealing fantasy for kids. And the Beatles obviously were a very real band and a great one. But why couldn't we, meaning Hollywood, uh, (laughs) invent bands like that ourselves? Right. And this was what the heyday of bubblegum was. Roughly 67 to 72. Those are the prime years where this becomes literally a factory. And you have producers inventing these bands. Oftentimes they were animated. Sometimes they were cast. The obvious explosion of artistry represented by Sgt. Peppers and, and you know, as rock and roll got serious in 67, 68, that was all well and good. But those kids were teenagers. There was another market here. There were those, you know, five to... 11, 12, 13-year-olds that we had a hook in. And you had an industry that was built up to do that. One of the kingpins of it was a guy named Neil Bogart. He would go on to uh, become absurdly stinkingly rich as the force behind the uh, village people and KISS. So this guy understood marketing, (laughs) costumes, invented bands. But in the beginning, he hired these two producers from Long Island for his label, Budo Records, Jeff Katz and Jerry Cassinets, And they were the force literally behind a bunch of these bands that never really existed. It was just a bunch of studio players. You had Ohio Express. You had something called Crazy Elephant. You had the 1910 Fruit Gum Company. Put your hands on your head. literally dozens of examples. There are a couple of great compilations out there. There's a wonderful book, which is a must-own for anybody fascinated by this. Bubblegum Music is the Naked Truth. It was kind of a history and compilation came out a few years ago. But for my money, and I know that I'm on, on dangerous water here because I'm going to mention him again. I think there's a, there's a moratorium. Only three mentions of Lester Bangs per year, Jim. Okay? <laughs> but Lester was one of the most eloquent critics about bubblegum. This stuff was derided by the mainstream rock press. The review of 1971's Archie's Greatest Hits in Rolling Stone consisted of one sentence. Lord 
hard no contained within the grooves of this album are 12 convincing arguments against capitalism. That was the entire argument. But the Archies were great, okay? Sugar Sugar is an incredible song. And Lester saw that. And before punk happened, he said, wait a minute, this stupid, dumb, short, catchy, very danceable music was some of the best stuff about rock and roll. Ah, sugar. Sure enough, you know, the Ramones would cover these songs, television, the talking heads. This was an inspiration to a lot of punk bands because it it took rock and roll down to its essence. Just the beat and the hook. And you had two minutes, it came at you, it was gone. This was a brilliant period in a lot of ways. Authenticity had nothing to do with it. As I said, these were all faceless studio hacks. In fact, one of my (laughs) favorite pieces of trivia, the Mighty Banana Splits. You know who wrote a lot of their songs? Jeff Berry. Barry White. <laughs> Barry White had yet to launch his disco sex god that career. That I did not know. And he's sitting there writing songs for the Banana Splits. I was going to go with a late era track to play to illustrate this, but it's impossible to find. And my album that I had from when I was six or seven is unplayable anymore. Literally, there's no wax left on it. I was going to play a Fat Albert song. He's at the tail end. Fat Albert came in like 74. You remember every one of those cartoons ended yeah. with the guys in the junkyard playing like the tub yeah. and, and, and a washboard spring and a bed spring, right? But I, I think I have to go with Banana Splits. I mean, the Banana Splits were my personal gods. I just would worship the Banana Splits. I'm talking, of course, about Flegel, Drooper, Bingo, and Snorky, okay? <laughs> I'm going to share something with you. This is a painful memory. This is one of the saddest days of my life. <laughs> when I was working my way through college, I was coming home with my paycheck. It was right before Christmas. I just got paid. I got mugged. I got knocked down on the ground. A guy stuck a knife in my... I lost my Banana Splits membership card. Oh, my God. It was in the wallet, okay? The heck with the paycheck. I lost my Banana Splits membership card. It explains a lot, Jim. It explains a lot. I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. (laughs) I can still listen to the Banana Splits today. And I'm going to play Tra La La. This is like the greatest song ever in the history of music, right? If you don't like this song, you don't like rock and roll. Banana Splits on Sound Opinions. Banana Splits theme, tra-la-la on Sound Opinions. Greg, two things to be said. Not only did this music talk a lot about candy, but it was often sponsored. You know, the Saturday morning cartoons were sponsored by the bubblegum manufacturers and the sugar cereal. So it it was all tied in. But candy was a metaphor, okay? Listen to the titles. Chewy, chewy, yummy, yummy, sugar, sugar, (laughs) jam, up and jelly tight. They were not really singing about candy. This was about <laughs> sex, okay? But it was subtle. It was, you know, it wasn't until you really hit like 11 
that you realized what Sugar Sugar was really about. Yeah. And by that point, you should have realized what it was about. <laughs> There's a subtlety that's lacking in Britney Spears years later singing I'll Be a Slave for You. Well, subtlety, uh, not normally a quality associated with this type of music, Jim, but some of the more well-crafted songs definitely had it. When it came to crafting image, one of the things that sort of came into being, in the, especially in the early 70s, as this genre sort of morphed along, was the creation of these family style bands. Some of them real, some of them not so real. You know, Partridge Family, the Cowsills, the DeFranco Family. The Osmonds. Uh, all had, you know, hits of, of varying degrees. But one family that eclipsed them all, and I think is the secret weapon of bubblegum for the next three decades, is uh, the Jackson 5. A lot of people don't talk about Jackie, Jermaine, Marlon, and Tito in the post-Jackson 5 era, but of course Michael Jackson, the lead singer in the band, and the youngest member of that band is still hugely popular, still hugely influential. I think the single most influential figure in bubblegum music for the last 30 years, Jim. Mm. Consider that Michael, when he joined this band, was about 11 years old and was the lead voice and immediately established himself by covering Smokey Robinson songs and doing a pretty credible job with it. They were the first act in in, uh, pop history to have their first four singles go to number one in the pop charts. And a lot of that is by that time, Barry Gordy, the head of Motown Records, had perfected this factory approach to making pop records to uh, the nth degree. The Jackson 5 were his last great creation. And in fact, he created something called The Corporation to write and produce all their songs. Barry Gordy was the head of the corporation, of course. But he was part of that team that was basically sculpting the Jackson 5 into the entity that they became and the spinoffs into the solo careers, etc. But you listen to those early records and they were pretty remarkable. You had that Motown rhythm section, you had that uh, corporation songwriting and production team, and then you had the remarkable voice of Michael Jackson on top of it all. So listen to I Want You Back and think about this as one of the great bubblegum songs of all time on Sound Opinions.
That's I Want You Back from the Jackson 5, a uh, key song in the development of Bubblegum. Uh, Jim, I think a lot of people, when they think about Bubblegum in its next era in the, in the 80s, they think about people like Tiffany and Debbie Gibson. I mean, Tiffany was the, uh, the groundbreaker who brought the uh, teen pop phenomenon directly to the shopping mall. She right, skipped right. the hockey rinks and uh, the big arenas around the country and went directly to the teens in the shopping malls and played her concerts there and ended up getting a number one record out of it. But I don't think the thread was that promising in terms of uh, the kind of music that came out of that whole Tiffany, Debbie Gibson marketing phenomenon. I go back to the Jackson 5 and the music that they inspired. Some of it wasn't very good, but some of it had some serious credibility. I think the 80s answer uh, to the Jackson 5 was was New Edition, a group out of Boston that was uh, created by another Svengali-like Barry Gordy figure, Maurice Starr, who put together these five good-looking guys and said, okay, boys, sing. You had people like Ralph Tresvant and uh, Bobby Brown, who later went on to infamy in his uh, troubled marriage with Whitney Houston, but nonetheless made a few great records before that stage of his life. And Belle Biv DeVoe came out of this band and had uh, a bunch of hits in the early 90s, as well as the vocalist Johnny Gill. So in New Edition, you had that vocal group paradigm that the Jackson 5 started out appealing to a teen audience that actually ended up spinning off a lot of solo careers and uh, some decent hit songs. In the 90s, the answer to the Jackson 5 New Edition model was a group called Boys to Men. Again, a bunch of teenagers out of Philly who are pretty decent vocalists individually, but much stronger collectively in the way they hearken back to a lot of 50s doo-wop. They had a classic sound that nonetheless sold a lot of records to teenagers. And one of the reasons was they had really good songwriters working with them, people like Babyface. When you listen to a song like Water Runs Dry from Boys to Men's second album in 1994, you're thinking... These guys aren't teenagers. They sound like a really great doo-wop group from, from the 50s, like the Spaniels or the Flamingos. Then you have the boy group phenomenon. A lot of people cast aspersions on, you know, the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. But I'd argue a few of those songs were really well written. Max Martin really knew what he was doing. He was a disciple of ABBA, another great guilty pleasure from the 70s. He was writing great songs for groups like the Backstreet Boys. I'm always thinking that a song like I Want It That Way, that the Backstreet Boys sung and and nobody thinks is any good, if the Temptations had sung that song back in the 60s, what would people think about it now? It's a great song with a lot of great hooks in it. It just happened to be sung by a group without any credibility. Yeah. But some of these songs (laughs) that these vocal groups were singing were really terrific stuff. And I think the best example of that was uh, Justin Timberlake. I had no hope for NSYNC as a group that would produce any kind of credible art. But when you look at that first record that Justin Timberlake made away from the band, I'm going, not only does he want to be Michael Jackson... 
he's doing a pretty good imitation of it. I mean, that song, Rock Your Body, sounds an awful lot like the Michael Jackson song, Rock With You, from Michael's Off The Wall record that was such a huge hit in the late 70s. So, you know, Justin Timberlake ended up being a credible artist. And, you know, here 35 years later, the legacy of that Jackson 5 bubblegum sound continues on to this day, and we're still getting some decent songs out of it. So here's Justin Timberlake doing his very strong Michael Jackson imitation on Rock Your Body on Sound Opinions. JT with Rock Your Body, he is a significant talent, uh, Greg, but don't write off Lance Bass, or maybe actually we should. (laughs) Look, the point of this dissection was that there was great bubblegum in every era. There is great bubblegum today. We argued about the Jonas Brothers a couple of weeks ago. I am not a Jonas Brothers fan. I I think that their Jump the Shark moment is pending. They are actually making their (laughs) first movie based on the children's book, Walter the Farting Dog. That has to be a career ender, right? I was not a big fan at all of Britney Spears because I think that the sexuality became very base. On the other hand, I've championed the Naked Brothers and Miley Cyrus. I think it's it's a timeless message, as was Debbie Gibson and Tiffany. Don't let the boy step on you. That's a good message mm-hmm. for any nine-year-old girl to hear along with a catchy chorus and, and a big dance beat. But I think to go out right now with a little bit of uh, au courant bubblegum, we ought to play uh, Hillary Duff. I, I'm, I'm, I'm siding with Hillary over all of them, Miley Cyrus, over Pink, over Avril Lavigne. I mean there's just a spark there and a defiance and a kind of, you know, girls empower yourselves spirit. So why don't we go out with a little bit of Hillary Duff here, Greg, wrapping up our discussion of 50 years of bubblegum. On music. This is So Yesterday from one of her early albums. If you'd like to share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline 888-859-1800 or email us at interact at soundopinions.org. 
We'll be back after a moment on sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with reviews of the new records by Beyonce and the Nux. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is Beyonce with a song called If I Were a Boy. It is one of two singles released simultaneously to launch Beyonce's third solo album, Post Destiny's Child. The record is called I Am, ellipses, Sasha Fierce. Well, why is it called that? There are two sides to Beyonce, you see. There is the the sensitive, soulful, artistic side, okay, <laughs> and that's the first half of the record. And then there is this new character she's introducing, Sasha Fierce, who is hard-strutting, a bold, brash alter ego. The Beyonce side is is a whole disc of ballads, and the Sasha Fierce side is a disc of club thumpers. This album is available in the standard 11-track edition. There's a 16-track deluxe edition. Mm -hmm. There are several, like three or four different downloadable versions. This is a marketing campaign the likes of which we have rarely seen and which would make any of the bubblegum bands we were talking about earlier envious. (laughs) We don't deal in marketing here on Sound Opinions. We're going to talk about the music. Let's play something. uh, As I said, the Beyonce stuff is the ballads. We heard one of those coming in. Let's play one of the more upbeat and invigorating dance songs. It's called Diva, which uh, Beyonce helpfully defines for us. A diva is a female version of a hustler, in case you were wondering. Here it is on Sound Opinions. Let me see. 
That's Beyonce on Sound Opinions with the track Diva from her third solo record, I Am Sasha Fierce. It's an example, that particular song, Jim, of this alter ego that you had mentioned. Normally, Beyonce does not come across nearly that aggressively on her music. She is trying to be a little bit more chaste than your average R&B diva. She's talking about female empowerment on some of her better songs. In this case, this allows her a little bit more freedom to act as roguishly as the boys who have done her wrong in her life. That's the big theme on this record and on all her solo records. You know, I am uh, dealing with this guy who does not know how to be a man, and yet I love him, I can't live without him. This doormat card that she's been playing gets a little old after a while. I'm wondering, come on, Beyonce, you're one of the most powerful women in the world. Stand up to this guy. You are a superstar actress. You are a a superstar singer. You are one half of one of the greatest power couples in all of popular music and the entertainment industry, married to Jay-Z. But if we're looking for confessional lyrics from Beyonce, I don't think we're going to get them. What What we look for is songwriting. And I think since the days of Destiny's Child, I actually think she's a credible songwriter, a person who's written some songs that have been anthems. You know, you talk about Independent Woman Part 1 or Survivor mm-hmm. from the Destiny's Child days. And that song, Irreplaceable. I will stand by that song. I, would, I wasn't a huge fan of B-Day, the 2006 record, but I think Irreplaceable was a great song. She has the capability of reinventing the idea of what it means to be an R&B, especially a female R&B singer in the 21st century by putting an emphasis on songwriting, which a lot of these uh, divas, frankly, don't. That's not one of the uh, the tools in their kit. No, it's it all about the vocal range. Yeah. Exactly. On, on that level, this this record disappoints me in that it does not take enough chances in that direction. Really? I don't hear a song as good as Irreplaceable. And what I do hear, especially on the Sasha Fierce side, is her catering to this vixen R&B singer attitude that is all over the place these days, and she just doesn't do it very convincingly. So I'd have to say this record is a serious disappointment for me wow. as, as somebody who has admired some of Beyonce's music in the past. I, I couldn't disagree more. I think this is a really pleasant ride. Look, you know, this is a kind of Greta Garbo-like character. She does not share any of herself. We are never going to know yeah, who true. is the real Beyonce Knowles. So the best you can do is, is sidle up to her and enjoy the ride. And I think that both the ballad stuff, which has a surprising amount of range. You know, you, you think there's one whole disc here of ballads. You know, this is going to be dreadful. You know, she's doing some that's folk rock. She's doing, you know, Halo is a clear attempt to rewrite uh, Umbrella. Uh, And then, you know, you get to the club stuff where, yeah, okay, there's too much vocoder. There's too much vocoder is the most spoken sentence by any rock critic (laughs) in 2007 and 2008. You know, I mean, that's just been the the, the case. But, you know, her take on the Euro pop dance thing, you know, her attempt to be Daft Punk is pretty amusing, I thought. Mm. You know, I like the song Radio. I like the song Diva. I like the song video phone. I like this album. I, I would have to say on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. Uh, it is right on the border, but since you're going negative, I will say buy it. Jim, you're far too kind. This is a trash it record for me. Fresh cappuccino with the mocha twist. Fresh, fresh cappuccino with the mocha twist. 
That is a song called Cappuccino, a huge MySpace hit uh, over the last years from the debut album by a group called The Nux, Remind Me in Three Days. The Nux are a, a brother act. They go by the names Krispy Kreme and Ra Al Milio, and they're originally from New Orleans. They had a rough go of it, as just about everybody in uh, the South did when Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005. Their house burned to the ground, and they were forced to leave the city. They migrated around the southeast for a while, ended up in Los Angeles, started picking up the thread of their music career again in Los Angeles. They got a demo in front of uh, Eminem's manager, Paul Rosenberg. That ended up doing great things for them, opening a lot of doors. They uh, opened the 2007 tour for Common, got in front of a lot of people there. Cappuccino went up on their MySpace site and started causing a lot of buzz on the blogs. Now the debut album is out, Remind Me in Three Days. It's a self-contained hip-hop group. These guys write their own songs, they produce their own records, and they play their own instruments. Mm-hmm. Let's hear a song from the new album. It's called The List from the Nux on Sound Opinions. The opening track from the debut album by the Nux, Remind Me in Three Days. You gotta love that bass, bringing that song in, Greg. As far as rappers, these guys are not the greatest. Krispy Kreme, in particular, you heard a little of it there. He has this annoying tendency of whenever he's trading verses with his brother, he introduces himself. This is Krispy! And it's like by the third, (laughs) fourth, twentieth time, it's like, okay, man, we got the idea, all right? However... Even the rapping, although it's not, you know, mind-blowing, you have to admire them because they aren't ashamed to let their sheer enthusiasm. It's like, we're in the recording studio. This is so great. And their and their inner geekiness come out. These guys are not cool. They know they're not cool. They're pretending to be cool, but they really know that we know, okay? <laughs> On top of that is the music. Now, there was one of those big uh, New York Times Sunday uh, think pieces that ran a while back, this sort of article that makes people hate critics, uh, where they were calling the Nux part of the meta-rap movement, along with acts like Chicago's Cool Kids and Kids in the Hall, meaning that they were going back and kind of self-consciously reviving the late 80s, early 90s thing. Just like, you know, the garage rock revivals in rock and roll mm-hmm. where people suddenly dress like it's 1966, although right. it's it's the present. And there is some of that. These guys wear, you know, the Adidas and they wear the gold chains and they're looking like they're hanging out often with Run DMC in, in 86. But what they're really taking from that first 
incredible era of rap is the wide open musical invention that you heard in A Tribe Called Quest mm-hmm. and De La Soul and the Beastie Boys of Paul's Boutique and Early Outcast. And, you know, that that's less a set of rules and a specific sound than it is an attitude. This is an incredibly musically inventive record. You know, everything from analog synthesizers to classic rock guitar and weird percussion and cheesy old beatboxes and 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 Valley Girl comes in to do a voiceover. This is an incredible record. This is a definitely a buy it record. Yeah, I will agree with you on that. When I when I first heard it, I was struck by the fact that they were so audacious and yet they weren't very polished. It was just very scruffy and offhand and they weren't being faux pimps. They were they were clearly out partying and you know having a good time with the opposite sex. But at the same time, they weren't the kind of guys that got in the VIP lounge. No, they were the guys thinking. waiting outside, yeah. drinking the forty <laughs> outside the club, hanging with right. the girls, and, and and it was a very down to earth version of that. The the fact that you're hearing you know those chugging guitars that you might hear on a Cars record or keyboards that mm-hmm. might be out of, off of a Depeche Mode record. Some of the rapping reminded me of this relatively obscure hip-hop group called the Gravediggers, mm. who had this very dark, almost gothic edge to some of their stuff. So they're bringing in all these, these kind of uh, reference points that you don't normally hear on hip-hop records. It, it's audacious, and yet at the same time, it's not taking itself seriously at all. So there's a sense that uh, you know somebody like a Dr. Dre or a Timbaland would sneer at this stuff like, Guys, i got to polish you up before we put this thing out. So it will be very interesting to me to see whether or not the marketplace relates to these guys at all. But I think this is one of the most audacious debut records I have heard in a long time and certainly one of the best hip-hop records of 2008. So I'm buy it all the way on the Nux. An enthusiastic double buy it. What do we have on the show next week, Greg? Next week, Jim, we have a show where we're going to review some of the top albums of the fall just in time for Christmas gift-giving. Good times. We have some thank yous to say on the way out, Mr. Cotton. As always, Sound Opinions was produced by the intrepid team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, is Tori Southside Malatia, the Max Martin, the Don Kirshner, the Lou Perlman of this show. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, guys, this is Derek from Detroit, Michigan. Okay, um, Don Felder, interesting guest, all right? The Eagles had hits. They all played their instruments well, wrote a bunch of songs, were very successful. But in the end, who gives a about the Eagles? Nobody. During the interview, Felder said, Oh, the Eagles now are really a parody of themselves and a parody of rock and roll music. The Eagles were always a parody of rock and roll music, a parody of country music. And no matter how good or recognizable their songs are, to me, they'll always be horrible. Talk to you next week. Don't let the sound of your own wheels drive you crazy. Lighten up while you still can. Don't even try to understand. Just find a place to make your stand. Take it easy. Hey, 
Hey, Greg and Jim. This is Nick from Cincinnati. Listen, I wanted to give you guys props for featuring the Vivian Girls. I really like them. I've been listening to them since about May when they had that uh, limited release that I found online. reviews talked about how they harken back to the 60s girl groups and talked about Phil Spector, but I have a different perspective. I, they remind me of the Cocteau Twins with the uh, all-girl harmonies and indecipherable lyrics. Either way, I wanted to say, you know, a group like them out of Brooklyn, maybe they get lost in the melee, or maybe they wouldn't be heard at all. And featuring on a show like yours really brings them into the forefront, and a lot of my friends heard them for the first time. So I want to say thank you. I really appreciate it. Hi, this is uh, Shane from Madison, Wisconsin. I was calling about your uh, the fact you featured the Vivian Girls on your show I saw Vivian Girls at South by Southwest and just wasn't really impressed one way or the other. But the way that you guys framed them and talked about how they were sort of a reflection of women dealing with innocence and experience and then played the song, uh, Where Do You Run To? Right afterwards, it, it really framed it in a whole new way such that I got in the car immediately and drove to my local record store and bought the record and loved it. So keep up the good work. Thanks. Hi guys, this is Teresa calling from Toronto. I was just listening to you both complaining that uh, my bloody Valentine can't seem to top Loveless. I think maybe we should just admit that Loveless is perfect. It can't be topped. It can't be better. And we just need to love it the way it is. That's all. Thanks a lot, guys. I love your show. Messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.